let's get started. Let's get focused here. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be looking at two stories from the scriptures this morning. And the first is the tail end of Matthew chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. And we'll also be looking at a healing of a blind man in Mark chapter 8. So, if you have your Bibles, why don't you follow along with me as I read about this healing of a deaf and mute man. Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. There, some people brought him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged him to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven, and with a deep sigh, he said, Ephasta, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now let's turn to Mark chapter 8. And we're going to read the story of the healing of a blind man. Mark 8.22 They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home, saying, Do not go into the village. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now believing that you have given us these words, this account of Jesus' life in Mark, so that we would know you, that we might enjoy and follow you, and that we might worship you. This morning we pray that you might help us understand these two miracles. We pray that we might walk away knowing more about Jesus' mission and more about his ministry so that we can become better followers. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, if you're just joining us for the first time, we have been going through the Gospel of Mark. Mark is one of four accounts of Jesus' life. Uh, we call them the Gospel. The Gospel simply means good news. And in the, the uh, New Testament, we have four accounts of what we call good news. There are four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So as a church, we've been studying the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we've been 
each week learning more about Jesus' life and his miracles and his mission. And this week, we were taking two different stories from Jesus' life. And if you have been following along, I told you uh, last week that we were going to take these two kind of miracles together because they form what we think of almost bookends. Uh, Let me tell you and kind of give you chronologically where we've come from. So just a few weeks ago, when we were in Mark chapter 7, we studied the story of the Syrophoenician woman. Remember, here's a woman. Jesus goes to a Gentile area, and she brings her daughter, or or she comes to Jesus. Her daughter is at home, and she's demon-possessed. And she's begging Jesus to heal her daughter. And we called that sermon Crumbs from the Table because that's what she wants, is Jesus is sitting with his disciples, and she's begging for a crumb from the table. And Jesus is going to open the door to help us understand the Gentiles are going to receive more than just a crumb from the table. They are invited to the table. And so that's, this story that we read this week immediately follows that story of the Syrophoenician woman. Right? So to give you the context, we had the story of the Syrophoenician woman. Then we have the story of the healing of the deaf man and the mute man. And then... We have in Mark 8, 1 through 21, the feeding of the 4,000. This is the story that we looked at last week, the feeding of the 4,000. Very similar to the feeding of the 5,000, but this time it's in Gentile territory. And we have a confrontation with the Pharisees, and we see that Jesus' disciples still don't understand. Remember, they're in the boat. They're arguing about the bread. Jesus says, hey, guys, do you still not understand? And this last story that we read follows the feeding of the 4,000. And so we're going to have this story of the healing of a blind man in 8, 22 to 16. So these are how the four stories fit together. And today we're looking at these two stories of healings. Now, I need to tell you up front, there's no way that we could go in-depth expositionally on two different stories. So this morning what we're doing is I want to highlight the heart of each of these stories And I want to share with you one unique aspect of each story. And I want to share you why that is important. So the the route we're taking today, I always give you a little outline. We're taking two stories. And what we're going to study is what is unique? Why is this story so important? What is unique? And then what is the meaning? All right? Everybody got that? Simple little outline. We got two stories. What is unique about the story? Why is Mark telling it? And then we're going to look at why that's important. Okay? Now, I want to begin with this first story. Their first story is the story about this deaf and mute man. So just a couple things. This is chapter 7, verses 31 to 37. Just a reminder of the context. So the context of this story is that Jesus had gone from, uh, from Galilee, and he had gone into the Gentile areas. Remember, he went, and where was the story taking place with the Syrophoenician woman? It was Tyre. And then it says Jesus went up to Sidon, and, and it tells us that he kept going on around to the area of Decapolis. Decapolis is the, 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 the uh, eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Decapolis simply means ten cities. Deca, where we get like decade, 
means ten, and polis is uh, city. And so we have Decapolis. The area of Decapolis uh, it was known for being a very large uh, area uh, of Gentiles. So there was some Jews mixed, but it's a Gentile area, and that is where this miracle is happening. So just some context of this healing miracle. Jesus is still ministering to Gentiles. Now, I often tell you about the parallel accounts. So when we take a look at those four Gospels, many times we will find what we call a parallel account. So a similar, the same story in a different Gospel. The parallel account in, in Matthew chapter 15 of this story, it gives us a glimpse. When we read the, the account of Matthew, or excuse me, Mark, it almost seems like this is the only person that Jesus healed that day. Mark doesn't tell us any others that Jesus healed. The reason Matthew is important is that Matthew tells us, and I'll read it directly, Matthew 15, 29 to 31. It says, Jesus went on from there, and he walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He went up uh, on the mountain, and he sat down there, and great crowds came, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put him at his feet, and he healed them. And so the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking and the crippled healthy and the lame walking and the blind seeing. And here's what they said. It says, the crowd glorified the God of Israel. So here's a, here's a, a clue in Matthew that this is in a Gentile area. Anytime Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience, it would just say they glorified God. Matthew makes clear that this was a Gentile audience because it says they glorified who? Not the gods that they traditionally worshipped. They glorified the God of Israel. So that's just a little important piece. So trying to lay some foundation for us before we dive into the story. Jesus is continuing on his mission. He's gone to Tyre. He's gone to Sidon. And now he's in the Decapolis. And Mark wants to point out this one specific story. So Matthew makes clear there was a lot of healings this day. It's not as if Jesus went to the Decapolis and he was ministering to his disciples, and he just healed one person. But Mark is the, uh, is the gospel that actually tells us one specific story of one person who was healed, which makes you kind of wonder, why this story? What's important? What is unique? And that's what we need to dive into next. One more just a setting thing to set the table. In verse 32, we're looking at Mark 7, verse 32. It says, this man could hardly talk. Let me just dive into that for a second. If you know anything uh, about impairments, it says this man was deaf. And for those who are deaf, especially those who are deaf from birth, even if they have the ability to speak, they have an inability to speak clearly because they don't know how to hear. Think about how your children hear. When your children learn to speak, they basically learn to imitate you. They hear sounds, and they mimic those sounds, and oftentimes, at first, those sounds are not quite clear, right? So, and sometimes little children will learn little pet names, right? They don't say dad, dad, they say da, or, all right, they, they learn little things, and it's because they're learning to imitate. Children don't come out of the womb fully speaking clearly, but we learn that speaking is the result of hearing clearly, And when you hear clearly, you're able to begin to imitate language. 
When we come to this man, he is deaf. We don't know whether it's from birth or whether he lost his hearing at a young age. But it tells us in the text he could hardly talk. So is the text telling us that he is unable to even voice noises? No. But the challenge is because he cannot hear, he's, he cannot speak in any intelligible way. And you know, today we actually have uh, people who, who this is their whole profession, right? When, when, ch- when children have a speech impediment, or children have problems speaking clearly, or they might ha- uh, just, that there's certain words they struggle with, we have entire professions devoted to helping those, those children. And you see, it is not easy. And so just to lay the groundwork, this is in the Decapolis, it's a Gentile area, there's a parallel account in Matthew, Matthew lets us know it's many miracles. Mark only tells us one, and it's a story of a man who can't hear, and it would seem like, as a result, cannot speak in any intelligible way. More importantly, he can't hear when he even speaks. So it's impossible for him to try to mimic. And you can understand the reality that this man, besides pointing to things, would have a very difficult time communicating with anybody. Is that he might be able to communicate, I'm hungry, he might be able to communicate uh, certain things, but imagine a man never being able to communicate his inner thoughts, his inner feelings, the, to understand there's a word for love. So we have a man who is, is, is desperate and in need of healing. And this brings us to what is unique in this passage. I want to get straight in, because in verse 32, I just mentioned this word hardly talk, is a really unique and rare word. So what's unique in this passage is one single word. Now, when we talk about this, this word, there is a normal word that is in the New Testament all over the place for inability to speak. The, the, the Greek for, for speaking is laleo, which means just to speak. When it wants to say that a man or someone does not, is not able to speak, it just says, ah, there's, there's an A in front. Ah, la leo, it's unable to speak. This would be normal. This is the normal word you use for someone who cannot speak. And we, we, uh, we know something similar, right? When we take the word possible, we say something is possible. The, the way to completely change that and, t- and say the reverse is impossible. We have a prefix on the front of the word. So the normal way of expressing this would be a la leo, but this is not the word. So what is unique? It's a single word. And the word that Mark is going to use instead of a la luz, which is unable to speak, and we're not so much worried about giving you a grammar lesson, but in this specific instance, it's very important. Mark uses a word that is called mogi lalon. It's a rare word, M-O-G-I, and then L-A-L-O-N. This is the second part is the word speaking. The first expresses an inability. Now, this is the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. Once. One time in the entire New Testament is this word used. Which should automatically cause us to wonder, what is the importance of this word as opposed to any other word Mark could have used? 
Now, it should also grab your attention that this word is actually only used one other time in the entire Old Testament. But not the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament. Now, if you're thinking, Sam, I thought the Old Testament was in Hebrew. It was. But there were scholars who translated a Greek Old Testament for the many Jews living at this time who had been culturally made what we would call Hellenistic or Greek. Is that uh, just like, uh, actually I'll use my wife as an example here. This is uh, my wife, technically Hispanic, um, but she didn't grow up really speaking Spanish in the house. So although technically on the outside she looks Hispanic, uh, my wife doesn't speak Spanish, not fluent. The same thing had happened with the Jews, right? You probably know people like this. Uh, Most of us are internationals, and you recognize if we use English in the house, or we use German in the house, or we use French in the house, or we use Italian in the house, uh, uh, that sometimes languages from where we came from or represent our culture or nationality, we often don't use. And this has happened to many, many Jews, Many Jews were living culturally, in a sense, in cities that were Greek, and they learned to speak Greek, and they no longer had the ability to read the Hebrew Old Testament. And so, there were 72 scribes, six from each tribe of Israel. Have you ever heard of the Septuagint? Septuagint? If you have heard of that word and think, well, I know it in general, but I don't know what it means, Septuagint is the word for the Greek Old Testament. What does it mean? Septuagint literally just means the 70. There were 72 translators. Six six scribes from each tribe of Israel got together and they made a Greek translation of the Old Testament. So this is just a little bit of history. We're, We're in grammar and we're in history, but it's all important. So if you've heard of the Septuagint, Septuagint was the Greek Old Testament. Uh, it also, just kind of for your information, uh, the, the Septuagint sometimes is not written as that word. It's just written LXX, uh, which means in the Roman numerals, 70. So, just some background. If you ever see references to the LXX, simply the 70, or if you see the reference to the Septuagint, the Septuagint is simply a faithful translation from Jewish scribes of the Old Testament to the Greek. Okay, having laid that out, let me explain what's next. So in the Greek Old Testament, there's only one usage of this same word. Mogilalon. One usage in the New Testament, one usage in the Old Testament. Anybody interested to find out where in the Old Testament that might be? Am I building up the drama enough? That you're wondering, saying, Sam, just tell us, what does this word mean? Well, I'm glad you asked the question. So it's found in Isaiah 35, and I need to tell you something about the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the prophets uh, that was sent to Israel. And if you read Isaiah, by the way, Isaiah is, is, is absolutely critical for understanding New Testament. In fact, when we look at the Messiah and the prophecies of a, what we are going to call a suffering servant, a, a, a Messiah who would come to conquer, but conquer by dying, all this comes from 
Isaiah. Isaiah is, is also the, the, the book that gives us a glimpse into the kingdom that Jesus is going to bring. Now, when we talk about Isaiah, Isaiah is broken up into two major parts. Chapters 1 to 34 are all about judgment. It's God is coming to judge the nations. God is coming to judge Israel. God is coming to judge, and nobody will escape judgment. Guess which chapter there's a turn? Chapter 35, right where this word is found. And there is a turn in Isaiah chapter 35 from judgment to salvation. And Isaiah is going to begin to show in chapter 35 that although God is going to judge, that God is also coming to save. That although there is going to be weeping, that God is going to bring joy. That although the, the deserts are, are now without life, this is where we get the, the famous picture of the streams in the desert, of the blooming of the desert. God is going to make the deserts bloom. He is going to make the deserts thrive. And in Isaiah 35, verses 5 to 10, is where we are going to find this word. Let me read it with you. Actually, I just have verses 5 and 6 here in the first part. It says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap leap like deer. And here's where we get our word. The mute tongue will shout for joy. The same word that is translated the mute tongue is the same word that Mark uses here in his gospel. Mogi lalom. The mute tongue will shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So, we have an unbelievably unique word that Mark is going to use, and we only find it in Isaiah chapter 35. It's the very chapter where he's going to prophesy we're moving from judgment to salvation, and we're going to see what is the sign that this is going to happen? What is the sign that this time in all of history has come where, we're, where God is, is going to pour out his judgment, but there's also an aspect where God is going to come to save well, it's going to happen in Jesus' ministry. And the sign that that is happening is this. The blind's eyes will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the mute tongue will sing for joy. Why is that important? Maybe you can connect the dots. But let me just share. Mark is making a direct and clear connection for the reader that the kingdom of God has come to the Gentiles. Before we saw it, remember, we've been building. We saw it with, the, with Legion, where, where Jesus is going to heal this man in a Gentile area of his demon possession. We saw it with the Syrophoenician woman, who woman who comes and begs for the crumbs. But now Mark is just absolutely much more clear because Jesus is ministering in a Gentile area, and Mark is going to say, there is... Th- Hundreds, maybe thousands of miracles that day. We don't know. But Mark chooses one story. And in that one story, what Mark makes clear is that he's going to connect what's taking place where Jesus is healing in this Gentile area with Isaiah 35, which is so clear. 
And the way that Mark does that, he uses this very same word that they, that they translated in the Greek Torah to say, when this happens, the kingdom of God is coming. And Mark says, the kingdom of God is coming. It's here. Jesus is doing what Isaiah 35 says, and he's doing it not just for the Jews. He's doing it with the Gentiles. This is absolutely revelational. This is game-changing. We, we saw what shadows of it, didn't we? But now Mark makes it really clear. In fact, let me just make it a little more clear because there's a beautiful picture. If we finish the rest of Isaiah, is that we're going to see that God is preparing a highway to heaven. In verses th- or chapter 35, 8 to 10, it says this, And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go uh, on about it. Nor will the lion be there, nor the ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. In verse 10 it says, And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Jesus is making a highway to heaven in the middle of the Gentile territories, and he's inviting all to come. What is unique? One single word. Why is it important? It's a clear connection from Mark that the Gentiles are included Let's go to our second passage. I told you that we will have to simply look at the heart of uh, each of these stories. If you would like uh, to, to study more in depth, I'll be glad to uh, give you my sermon notes. Uh, I can share with you more about some of the things we, we can't go into if you're interested. But let's move on to the second story. And I want to take a look at this healing of the blind man. And then we're going to take a look at how these stories fit together. And it would probably be helpful. Let me just read this passage again to remind us of the healing of the blind man. This is now, We're now skipping ahead. We're, we're, the, the, the story immediately after the healing of the deaf man was the feeding of the 4,000, then the confrontation with the Pharisees, and then Jesus' disciples in the boat. We're now moving to 8, verse 22, and it says this. They came to Bethsaida. By the way, just so you know, Bethsaida uh, is a base that they've operated out of, or at least something uh, uh, that is very familiar. It's the home of Peter and Andrew and Philip. So now we, we are moving back from Gentile area to where in Jewish area. Just make note of this. So this is, this is familiar territory. This is home base. This is home base for some of Jesus' disciples. And that's where this miracle is healing. Moving from a Gentile miracle, where literally maybe hundreds, if not thousands of miracles, to back home. They came to Bethsaida, Some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside of the village. When he spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then uh, then his eyes were opened, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, do not go into the village. So let's get straight into this text. What is unique about this specific healing? By the way, this is not a part of what's unique. 
These two stories are only told in Mark, nowhere else. Uh, we, as far as the actual healing of the, the, the deaf mute and the, this healing of this blind man. Matthew tells a parallel story. He tells about the healings in general, but he doesn't tell us about this specific man. So just as a, as a little footnote, nowhere else in the scriptures do we hear these stories. But what is unique about this specific story, it is the only miracle in all of the Gospels that the person is healed in stages, which should cause us once again to ask, what is taking place here? Now just think about this. Jesus uh, has healed in the past by simply speaking and casting out demons. He's healed in the past simply by speaking even from a distance, where the person is not even in his physical presence. Jesus has healed by, uh, by placing his hands on, on people. But every single time that Jesus is healed has always been immediate. Every single healing. This is the only time in all the scriptures where the miracle happens in two parts. So what we know is, this is not a matter of power. So it's not that Jesus couldn't have healed him. So the question would is then, is there any significance as to why the healing happens in two parts? What might Mark be showing? Remember, Mark is the only one who tells a story. So what is unique? Like I said, what is unique about this is the healing in stages, if you're taking notes. Why is this important? Well, I think it's important for two reasons. But it's clear that Mark seems to be using this healing as a metaphor for disciples' eyes that are blind and cannot see, and the previous story for disciples' ears that are deaf and are unable to hear. So, let me give you two reasons. The story of the healing summarizes the journey up until now. So this is the first point. Why? Why is it important? We are now in Mark chapter 8, and next week as we begin, and notice I'm pushing, you think, why did you do two stories in one sermon? It's because before we stop and go into the Psalms for the end of summer, I want to get to next week, which is, in a sense, the center of Mark's book. The center of Mark's book is Peter's great confession. And then the climax of the book is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. These stories immediately precede this climax between when Peter has been, we see the disciples. They are seeing and not perceiving over and over and over again. And so this healing in two stages summarizes the journey up till now. When we started in Mark 1, verse 1, all the way up until today, this story gives us an, an understanding. It's, it's almost like a, it's a, a living metaphor of Jesus' disciple with his journeys. He's, he's invited them to follow him, and they see his identity, but not absolutely clearly. Right? So this man, God, uh, Jesus restores his sight. He could have done it at once. Jesus restores his sight, and what does he say? I see, he says, so I can see people, but they look like trees. He doesn't actually have any clarity. And so he went from not seeing to he actually can, he can see something. 
but he's not able to see in specific detail. And Jesus is, is then going to heal him completely. What we've seen in the journey up till now and what this story is doing, it's, it's the final story before Peter, Peter's great confession, is that this seems to be Mark's summary of, uh, of, of explaining the journey. And so we do see over and over again, Jesus, his disciples' eyes are open. They're following, but they're not getting all of the uh, perceiving his mission. The second thing that this story does, and why it's important, is that it sets the stage for the continued journey. Because a little spoiler alert, but I know you've read your Bibles, so this won't be too much of a spoiler. I won't go home feeling bad that you can't watch the movie. You've read about Jesus, and you know what happens next. So here's what happens next, and we'll go in-depth next week. Peter is going to confess Christ, and so we're going to see his eyes are being opened. His spiritual blindness is dissipating. He confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. But you know what happens next? When Jesus tells him he's going to suffer, Peter's going to pull him aside and say, Jesus, we've got to have a talk. You can't, be, you can't say those kind of things. And so Jesus is going to need to explain to Peter, Peter, get behind me. Talking like that, you're missing, you're not understanding why I came. And so we're going to see that Peter, his eyes are being opened, but he still doesn't perceive. So this story is a stopping point. It summarizes Mark chapter 1 through right now, and then we're going to have Peter's confession, which stands in the middle of Mark. I told you in our first sermon, what we will do when we look at Mark is, you will be able to answer for yourself who Jesus is and whether you believe in him, because story after story after story will reveal his identity and it will show you what he has done. And we have been building, literally since January, it's been seven months in the making of getting to the point where you can now stop and you can see and perceive, how do I understand who is Jesus to me? That's what we have been working towards, and that's what Mark has been working towards, okay? So do you see, one, the uniqueness, the healing stages? Do you see the importance? One, summarizes the story up till now. But it's also going to foreshadow the continued story that is going to need to unfold. Is that Jesus uh, is going to be recognized by Peter as the Messiah. He's going to confess him as the Messiah. But as soon as he does that, he's going to say, but you can't suffer. And so Jesus has some more work to do. All right. So let me bring this all together. Let's talk about a summary. And then I want to look at application. How we have specifically respond and apply today. So, four stories that we've dealt with, that we've kind of dealt with in the first, the bookend, kind of the first chapter, was the healing of the deaf mute. Excuse me, the first chapter was the Syrophoenician woman, healing of the deaf mute, feeding of the 4,000, healing of the blind. Let me summarize those four stories. Mark's putting them all together. Collectively, these stories emphasize three themes. If I were to put it in simple words, inclusion, not exclusion. Jesus, uh, Mark is showing through many different stories that the Gentiles are included. And you've heard me mention this. 
several times. And the reason we mention it again is because Mark seems really important to tell stories that are emphasizing the same theme. So we see the inclusion, not the exclusion of the Gentiles. The second thing that these stories all collectively seem to tell is compassion, not indifference. That Jesus has compassion. And, he, and that goes hand in hand with this that first point. Inclusion, not exclusion. Compassion, not indifference. And lastly, the need for the disciples' spiritual eyes and ears to be open to Jesus' mission. So those four stories all seem to be making these same points. Does everybody see, understand, and grasp that? Four stories, three points. Inclusion, not exclusion. Compassion, not indifference. The need for Jesus' disciples, their spiritual eyes and ears to be open to his mission. Just as the mute and deaf man needed a physical healing for his, eye, or for his ears to be opened and his mouth to be loosed and to speak God's praises, Just as the blind man needed to receive sight, Jesus' disciples need to receive their uh, sight for their spiritual eyes, hearing for their spiritual ears. So let me practically just outline two responses to this truth that we saw today. I want us to draw one principle, and I want to lay down one challenge. So two practical ways, a principle and a challenge. So the principle is this. Jesus is the only one who can restore you to the image of God. Now you kind of think, where did you get that? One of the interesting aspects of both of these stories, and like I said, I I couldn't go into everything this morning, but both of these stories are unique in how hands-on Jesus was. Jesus literally puts his hands in the man's ears. Right? And in fact, if you read the commentaries, the question is, why does Jesus heal this way? Because he doesn't have to. He didn't have to touch the man's ears. He didn't have to spit on his fingers and touch the man's tongue. He didn't have to spit on his hands and put mud on his hands and wipe them on the man's eyes. So why was Jesus so hands-on? And one of the beautiful pictures that we see it's almost like the potter with the clay. It, the, these stories hearken so much. There, there's so much of the fingerprints of creation on these stories. It's, it's amazing. Because how did God make Adam? With the dust of the ground, he begins to form Adam from the dust. And literally, you have heaven touching earth where God's hands are on the, the physical things to touch them and give life and to make them in his image. How did God make in his image? He literally had his hands on them and he touched them and he made them and he breathed life into them. And it was when God used his hands that he formed into his own image. What's amazing about this is that as Jesus performs these miracles, he touches the man's ears. The one aspect of, of, of being made in the image or one of the aspects, I should say, because we know that the, the heart and the soul uh, and his, the, 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 the sin nature was, is the aspect that is most broken. But on the physical, on the outside of what we could see, the aspect where he was broken, where he needed healing, was his ears and his mouth. And what did Jesus do? 
almost like the potter with the clay. Jesus touches his ears. Jesus touches his mouth. He puts his hands on his lips. And one of the things that I want us to see is that Jesus is the only one who can restore us to the image of God. Nobody else can do it. You know, as as you sit here, the reality is we are all marked by something, right? So when when somebody has a physical ailment, like, for instance, blindness or or deafness or inability to speak, it's, it's very obvious. We can see it. But when somebody is broken on the inside, it's much harder to see. And the reality is that this is what life does. Because of sin, we all are broken on the inside. And the the way that we're broken might be different, but all of us have have hurts. All of us have had experiences which, which mark us, which mar us, which break us. And the reality is, just because others can't see it, we go around just as broken. This man couldn't hear. How many people are going around with the inability to love because of something that has happened in their own life, a love that was not received from a parent? How many around us are going through because of circumstances where uh, we, our life is broken because of what somebody has done to us? Those secret hurts that we carry around. And one of the things I just want to point out is, is that no matter how much we might try personally, no matter how much counseling we get, no matter what, uh, what our, uh, the psychologist might give and prescribe, and I'm not in a, in a sense trying to devalue those things, but the self-help books and you trying your best and your best efforts to try to heal your heart from things that happen, it doesn't happen. You need literally the hands of the God who made you to help restore you. It happens in God's hands. And so one of the things I want us to walk away, a principle that you need to know, here's what I know. Just as we read about the man who is blind, just as we read about the person who is deaf, you have brokenness in your life. It might not be as visible on the outside, but I know every one of us is marred and broken by life and by sin. And, by, and the sad fact is by many of those who have lived in close proximity with us, who have hurt us. We're messed up. Here's what I want to tell you. But you can't fix yourself. And no amount of of others, even godly wisdom, the church can't fix you. I can't fix you, but I can preach the truth and point you to the one who can. And this is why we preach Jesus Christ. The second principle that I want to invite you to respond to is this. This is a challenge. So the first is the principle. Jesus is the only one that can fix you. That's a life principle. Mark that down. Write that down. You can't fix yourself. The second is just a challenge. As I read both of these accounts, one thing that really stuck out was how both of these situations, the man who was deaf and dumb, the man who was blind, were both brought by friends to Jesus. Read the accounts. It's their friends who bring them. In fact, why why tell you to read them? I'll read them. It says in verse 32, 732, there were some people and they brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk and they begged him to place his hand on the man. Here are friends who bring the man to Jesus and who's begging? The man can't even speak. He's broken. And his friends come to him and say, Jesus, please, 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 please heal this man. Let's look at the second account. The second account 
It says, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man, and what did they do? They begged him to touch their friend. They begged him to heal. Now, these aren't unique to these passages. We have other passages, but one thing that just stood out to me today, so clearly in both of these stories of healing, what it, they happen because people brought their friends to Jesus, and they pleaded with Jesus to heal. I couldn't help but think that every single one of us has people that we need to bring to Jesus. Not because they're convinced that Jesus can heal them, but because we are. Remember point one? (laughs) Point one is Jesus is the only one who can restore people to the image of God. He's the only one who can heal. So here's what I'm thinking. Besides ourselves that need healing, I am convinced that you have people in your life that you need to bring to Jesus. Because he's the only one that can heal. And the reality is, I think you've probably already tried in many ways to bring that person to Jesus. You have probably shared. You have probably invited. You have probably tried many, many, many ways. And here's what I want to invite you to do. Do not give up. If the first point is true, then there is no healing apart from Jesus. And if these stories represent models for us, what would you give for a friend who wouldn't give up and refused to to take no and kept trying to bring you to Jesus? So let me challenge you today that whoever that friend might be, would you not give up? Would you not lose heart? And would you do everything within your power to constantly bring them to the feet of Jesus? And would you be pleading with Jesus to be healing their heart, to be opening their eyes? Because here's the truth. Eyes can't see, ears can't hear, and we can't be healed apart from Jesus. And so let me invite you to bring your friends to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're humbled once again that we continue just to have this account, this record of Jesus' very own words, a record of his healings. Because apart from these actual real, concrete, touchable, tangible stories where we actually see the life of Jesus, God, you would, you would just be this kind of emotional being that we want to believe in, that we want to believe that exists there, that loves us, but instead we actually have real concrete stories that show us what that love looks like. Lord, we pray that you would help all of us respond. Your word is so clear that you are the only one who can restore us to the image of God. You are the potter, we are the clay, and what is broken can only be fixed by you. And we recognize that the world that you've given to us to live in and the people around us in our families, at work, our friends, that there's many there who are broken and who need you. And I pray that we would be friends who do not give up. 
We pray that you would teach us to plead and to bring our friends to Jesus. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen.